This is Shaco Art Speak. Hey, Shaco Art Speak. What's up? Yep. Snack Smell is sitting next to a um, Baby Yoda. Yeah, I am. And they and Baby Yoda's ears look weirdly similar to Garrett's mustache. I was going to say the same thing. If we can get a picture of that for, uh, you know, our purposes, I think. I don't know. Penny, I don't know if your daughter is going to be excited about that, but we, that's, unca- that's uncanny. That is unreal. We're, we're definitely getting a picture of that. That's a win right there. See, Any Anytime yeah, you can. Just the ears. Not yeah, the, just not the, the ears. face. Yeah, not the face. Just the ear shape is a mustache shape. It's Garrett's mustache shape. I'm saying all you need to do is dye your mustache sort of a pale green color, drop a few beads on it, and voila. Well, hey, I'd you love know, that. Uh, St. Patrick's Day is coming up. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. But <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Um, I don't where's know, the child? <laughs> uh, yeah, dude. Uh, wait, there's somebody else here. Yeah, that was a weird. That wasn't me talking. <laughs> wasn't me talking. So we call him. Um, we're, we're trying to think of names. I kept going with Spice, Cody Spice, but <laughs> Cody I don't know Spice if Cody Spice is. Um, so uh, historically, at jobs I've been called Code Red. That stuck forever. Code Red for a while. Wow, yeah. dude, and it and it matches up with the love of Taco Bell. <laughs> That's get true, true. So we're going to be wrestling. So, here, so here's the thing. We have our um, highly esteemed, very prestigious, um, historic guest, Cody Godwin. Welcome, Cody. I'm hey, going to say a little more up, first. Man. Thank you. Okay, don't say too much yet, Cody. Let's sure. wait. We want to. So, so here, let me give you back. Let this like, build. Yeah, let this build because people have been waiting for Cody to be a part of this. They don't know it yet. I'm trying to yeah. have some music go with you. Yeah. Gosh, that's got some New Orleans seasoning to it, Garrett. But, I mean, I can't, I can't, I can't lie where I'm from. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to stop if you're not going to talk over that. <laughs> That's just, I was a, a captivated. If, was, you could have, if you could have seen Garrett's face as serious as it was, it was really good. I was like, this is great. I'm good. And that's our episode. Appreciate y'all. As always, we love you. Yeah. Next week on New Orleans Jam. Yeah, for real. This is the launch of the new podcast. So Cody is a part of our Shaco Art Space team yeah. and has been so since the beginning. Forever. I mean, all the way back since the first critiques, even before that. I was about to say, I met Cody. Like weeks into being in Richmond because of the Friday night critiques. Yep. yep. So Cody is one of our, you know, behind the scenes, uh, just vital team players. And as we're growing, Cody's uh, probably going to be someone you're become more familiar with yes. uh, through writing and other endeavors that are uh, top secret that are boiling, Shh, boiling right now within the walls of Shaco Art Space. No, it's just. Vibrating, and vibrating, and even and which includes Shaco Art Speak. So we have a team that uh, may include people like um, uh, Cody and Ian Seahess and uh, Ian. hi Ian. And then he sent me some really hilarious text two days ago at like two <laughs> o'clock at night. Ian's the only person that texts me at two o'clock at night. Yeah, um, which is why I have to keep my phone low because my wife's like, "Who's texting you at two? Ian Seahess. <laughs> That's who. Um, That's amazing. <laughs> that might be Ian's theme song. Who's texting you at two? Ian CS. That's who. Um, that's good. I'm writing that down. Write that down. <laughs> Go skip that on the. We got to make that jingle. Yep, that's a jingle for the future. And so, uh, and then uh, uh, Curtis Newkirk might be uh, joining Wait, the crew. I've heard that dude's name somewhere before. And all I'm going to say to you is, when it all kind of flushes out, you may actually be seeing them as much as hearing them. What? And I'm just going to leave it there. What? Yeah. What? Oh, I don't know. Cool. I don't know, Shaco. Things are cooking. So anyhow, so Cody's joining us on this episode about calling. It, 
and uh, uh, kind of like picking up with the last episode on free will. Um, Cody had no choice in the matter, uh, by the way. We, <laughs> we we drove by his house, put a, a pillow over him, a pillow a case over him, <laughs> threw him in a van. Bum rushed him. Bum rushed him. You can't, you can't actually fit me in a whole pillowcase. <laughs> yeah. The <laughs> kids were crying. It and was, so, and so in the process, we're going to be trying to cultivate Cody's nickname. We haven't we haven't fully landed yet. Code Red is interesting, but I I I have a part of me that um, it's like we need no, we're not taking somebody else's nickname. That's fair. Yeah. So Cody yeah. Spice is just something I, I think is funny because it doesn't work, and so I just said that off the tongue <laughs> as a place. My favorite thing about it is that it doesn't work. Yeah, that's what I like it. <laughs> in terms of its formal effects, it fails. Yeah. In terms of it succeeds where it fails. In terms of Cody being spicy, he's just not. <laughs> yeah, it's probably true. Yeah, Cody, <clears throat> Cody is not one of those people that I would ever like put like the colloquial spicy yeah, on top that's of. That's why it, because it's great. he's, he's it's uh yeah, definitely yeah. not an unagreeable person. No, Cody's yeah, Cody's Cody's like Cody's family. Just flipping Cody's chairs, Cody's family tables. and Cody's family is family. Mm-hmm. So hello Cody's family. Yeah, also thanks for when the you're cookies. listening. Yeah, the cookies were great. great. Alexander, we see you. Um, <laughs> he's going to be listening probably. Yes, I think he will. 100%. Yeah, so we're excited that's that awesome. he's listening and I hope he's internalizing all of this. Because by the time he grows up, he will be the president of the United States. Yeah, or he'll have the a states real, won't or, be united. Or, I was gonna say, <laughs> yeah. or, or he'll have a good, really good job. It'll yeah. it'll be like an honorary title. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You get to be president. Yeah, and you get to be president. Yeah. Thanks, Oprah. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it'll be like the draft. Your card gets pulled. It's like ah, crap. Yeah, I'm the president. Oh, <laughs> so um, well, so hitting out. So we're we're gonna hopefully get serious. Uh, and uh, Cody's yeah. got a lot of great thoughts on this this subject, and has been was writing stuff when we were interacting, and, and it was like this would be a great episode to pull him in, just because he's got he's got great thoughts on it. So no pressure, just we're gonna dive in. But yeah. what I wanted to do, fellas, is just do a super like super concise summary, like yep. super concise. So free will, yes, it's the ability to actualize a limited state of affairs. Great. And that accords with desire. So, so desire is uh, built into that. And it's your ability to actualize, key mm-hmm. being a limited state of affairs, yeah. a given limited state of affairs. And so that's super technical. And, and it's not trying to land with regards to what that is, but it's to say that at any given moment, we have a limited capacity to actualize a given state of affairs. Um, You're pissing me off, Ryan. Yeah. Can I, can I like slide limited. something in there that I was thinking about? First of all, thanks for having me. It's super exciting to be here. Yeah. No um, problem, Dana. So... I was thinking about the whole free will thing, and I was thinking, as part of what you just said, a precondition is us as beings who have the ability to conceptualize counterfactuals, Mm -hmm. so possible states of affairs to then select from, which I think is sometimes like we get to the decision-making point, Mm -hmm. and we don't back up and say, well, before we even get to the decision-maker, the action point, there's the the conception or the imagination point. Mm Mm-hmm. Which just as an aside, it's interesting because that means like free will necessitates that you're a type of being who can imagine things, mm-hmm. which is why we see the differences in like animals and humans, things like that. Um, so I don't want to hold it up too much, but I think that I think that imagination stage mm-hmm. of what possibly could be is a huge component as we move to then like that action stage within the limited set because yeah. the imaginations so, define some of the boundaries mm-hmm. for what we're considering 
possible and not possible or constrained mm-hmm. or unconstrained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, mm. I, yeah, also I think that's great, right? <clears throat> uh, the entire kind of process and lifespan of this idea of free will. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the fact that it, it, it also means that within this space that there are times that we act uh, almost like a two-headed monster in the sense that we're like crying out about things like superstition and fate and things like that at the same time screaming about my free will and my ability mm-hmm. to do when these are actually with what you're talking about, Cody, they're, they're, they're oppositional mm-hmm. ideas mm-hmm. that if I'm having an ability to choose from a set of limited things and mm-hmm. then I'm able to like, um, make those things happen, like, you know, uh, then, then there may not be an option of like everything happens, you know, like it just, it's, it's, it's set in stone. It's going to happen this way, whatever. Mm-hmm. So there may be, uh, other places that this can piss you off as well. Yeah. Not just in the stuff we've already talked about. Yeah. 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 So, so in, and in that, so since you, since you made it weird right away, <laughs> thanks for making it. Cody's been listening for so long and been, he's been a part of the actual conversations for so long that he didn't need but two seconds to make it weird. So yeah, I'm, Cody I'm will send us these little else. notes after episodes not little, that are like essays yes, that essays. are just like, this is great. Yeah. I mean, and so have like, you thought about this? <laughs> have you thought about this? And then here's like an encyclopedic it's volume. An encyclopedia. But it's great because with I think the last email that he sent like that, I responded with like two sentences, which yeah. was, this is amazing. Also, that last paragraph I want to have framed to put in my house. <laughs> yeah. 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 I always default to, well, we're, we're having you on the podcast soon. Yeah. So. <laughs> it'll, be, yeah. it'll be easier to have you on the podcast a few dozen times. Let's just keep shooting them and figure, spark something off. Yeah. No, it's good. I mean, it's good to, good to process and we invite it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, so what you referred to, so I'm going to, I'm going to, um, assist in the weirdness. And so there are thinkers that would argue that, um, so take them, take, uh, so some people will say the universe, the mind of God. So I'm going to use the mind of God and I'm just going to say this, like if, so that I'm, I'm not saying there is, but I'm not saying there's not, but as a, as a designation, the, uh, there are those that would try to say that God is, uh, the greatest conceivable being. Uh, that that means that there's nothing that we can conceive beyond God, and within that, the uh, one one of the ideas about God is that uh, God knows uh, all actuals, um, all counterfactuals, and all hypotheticals hmm. uh, simultaneously. So he and, and so here's so he knows all actuals, all counterfactuals, and all hypotheticals simultaneously. Total. So, so that would be what is, what isn't, and what could be. Yes. Okay. And, and that is uh, the total knowledge. That's called. So it'd be like would be like total knowledge. So total knowledge, non contingent. Uh, total knowledge, not contingent upon reality, but reality contingent upon that which is, in terms of of God. So total knowledge. <laughs> and so in that total knowledge, the knowing is not merely um, a. Uh, it's it's the, the way that we think about knowing is compartmentalized. So we always say things like holistic or, you know, you'll have like haptic knowledge or uh, mental ascent or and you start to like designate because we we, we kind of know in part because um, uh, we are limited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so so but the idea is that um, that the God is not. So that's so it's an interesting thing to frame yourself against the idea of a limitless being that even then, though, is constrained by um, in the sense of uh, goodness or character ethics. So like. In this conversation, there is an ethical dilemma that we haven't even like scratched at, and mm-hmm. then that that uh, interacts with morals. So, so now, so so I, I'm framing that to then say, to your point, that imaginativity, uh, just to uh, amplify what you said, mm-hmm. is um, is also highly contingent 
within the realm of possibility. And, and one of the factors that pertains to imaginativity is the, is the priorness of reality before you imagined yeah. or before you emerged or before you existed. And so, so you are um, contingent heavily on the preexistence of, of that which is. Yeah. Um, and then that which people bring to you in whatever particular ways that they do. And that frames in your limited ability to actualize states of affairs in relationship to other people that are limited in their ability. To, and it becomes an infinite regress unless you postulate something greater than yourself. At some point, the question becomes, is there something greater than yourself? So I've always flirted with this because it's one of those discussions that everybody's afraid to have because they're so afraid of offending each other. But it actually, it, it's, um, you have to work hard to ignore these things. Like you have to actually bury your head in the sands to not have these conversations. And then uh, we succumb to sort of a pop level media that polarizes these issues around politics and problematic uh, personalities. And then the average person is so asleep in some ways that, um, and, and it's not like I'm all awake, but they're so asleep, to, so asleep, so asleep and so afraid mm -hmm. um, that they, ignore this and, he, and here's i would say one last thing to to not ignore it would be to admit that you can't know this stuff all at once the average person thinks that gut level all of us at various points in our life will say it's like it's an intuitive assumption if i can't make full sense of what you just said right now chances are it's not possible so like mm -hmm. if i said to you there is a, a higher power well the average person will say well how can we know that well, how can you know? And then you can, and then someone might go a step further and say, like, no one can know that. Um, nobody can really answer that. So we're just going to be left deciding what we want. Mm. Okay. Well, okay. So, but here's what you did, though. You negated something greater than yourself and assumed the position of the greater than self by making the absolute jump to no one ever in the history of ever can actually know that. And how do you make that inference? Well, because I in this moment can't conceive of it. Yeah. Well, maybe your mind, maybe you're too small. Maybe, maybe something big takes time to uh, uh, work through you because of your your finite limit contingent limitations, mm -hmm. and it requires humility to ponder, to slow down. It could take years of relating to, which is a kind of knowledge that properly understands that we can't know it all at once yep. you know it in relationship like everything else so yeah. making it even weirder today well i, I was going to say like everything you just said um i would apply also in a microcosmic sense to yep. how artists approach careers correct because even like talking with students young students doesn't matter high school, college, new artists, whatever, it, it is the same thing. It's like I need to be able to conceive of the next 50 years of my life mm -hmm. to know that what I'm doing is proper and correct. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but that's not how it works. It doesn't work that way. You've got to actually sit in the uncomfortableness, mm -hmm. the uncomfortableness of not knowing. Yeah. But with the the kind of like the uh, the fullness and expectation that there is something to know. Because if there's nothing to know out there, if nobody can ever conceive of it, Find something else to do. Just well, go with the easiest, dumbest thing in the world and just waste it. Well, that's the thing, though. So this is the thing, though. So like in a not in the um, not in the hobby horse kind of way, but the kind of 
you know, this this gets into the thing though. See, we we are we have a a besetting uh, um, universal. It's like I, I want to make like a dumb statement myself and and kind of mash things up and say there's a colloquial ubiquity, mm-hmm. um, which is like would not make sense outside of the internet. Yeah, because colloquialisms are localized, right? But there's like some kind of, and I'm making a leap here. I'm just making an opinion, opinionated statement when I say this. There's like a kind of like a um, a colloquial ubiquity that has beset us all, and so it allows for everyone to operate at a, at a, a, a lowered standard of 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 mm, uh, I would call it flourishing, but just just life expression. And as long as there's a ubiquity to it, there's the sense that this is we're like we're like kind of at the top. Yeah. But, but, but we're actually not. So here's a couple. Here's a couple things that just kind of, you know, this is tangential to this conversation. But just to throw it out there, one is I forget what the rapper's name is. It's like Gucci Baby or Gucci something. We just talked about it. Yeah. But there's just like a comparison of a Tupac song and, and this rap <laughs> artist song, and, and it's like that's anecdotal. But you can see a, a devolution in language and yeah. and and clarity. So here's a here's a new. Uh, I mean, I got a million of these, but I just heard something where the military came out and said that. There, they call it Nintendo. Just they call them Nintendo people. Mm-hmm. So they said the military is struggling because of Nintendo people, which is a catchphrase for them that says that talks about how the average person joining the military's bone density is brittle and shrinking, and and because the wow. sentient the the sed sed um what do you call it? sedentary lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and so what he said so what what follows from this is um, an inability to persevere. Uh, an ease by which they get hurt and they're spending much like longer time and energy and effort to prepare them to be the kind of person that can enter into boot camp. Yeah. But that's happening within boot camp. Ugh. And what I would say is that mirrors my own experience as an educator. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and there's so much more that they said about this. Um, and then uh, I want to give one more example. These are all anecdotal happening right now. I just saw this in like with a matter of two days. A basketball coach, I think it's Mike Calhoun. I can't remember if it's Calhoun, Coach Calhoun, but I can't. It's a famous coach. Maybe it's the coach from Michigan State. I can't remember. But um, so um, after a Michigan game, a basketball coach who's famous, who went to Michigan, part of the Fab Five, Jawan Howard, uh, acted inappropriately and turned into a fight. And as the teams were shaking hands after a loss, he lost his temper. He shouldn't have done it. That's not the point. But then another coach was asked, do you think we should eliminate teams shaking hands after games? And he went on to say, we've eliminated every other kind of um, measure of taking responsibility for your action through early education on up to this point that I'm having to teach my players things that they almost have an inability to understand or grasp yeah. that just 10 years ago, the average athlete coming in did as far as just conduct and behavior. He goes, why would we now remove responsibility yeah. of knowing how to shake hands and deal with a loss properly? By removing that, you've re- removed every bit of personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. So I know I sound, here's the thing. I don't, I don't care if people go like, oh, it's the old guys talking. <laughs> Because that's relative. Yeah. So, because yeah. when I talk to my dad, uh, he thinks that I'm very young because he's seventy something. Yeah. So it's all relative, and so I'm going to be as relative as the person who says that because you're probably younger than me. But yeah. here's the thing: if you're lucky, you're going to get older. Like for instance, this is a dumb tangential. I made a comment on 
Um, sorry, I'm super fired up today. Do it. I made a comment on a uh, a basketball page. You know, like I'm on yeah, do yeah. like a little basketball podcast thing mm-hmm. with some friends. Um, and uh, I just said that um, I saw the four dunk contest contestants, uh-huh. and I was worried that this was going to be a boring contest. And that people are getting excited about a particular athlete's leaping ability, mm-hmm. and I said he he doesn't jump much higher than that. Well, I did what I didn't realize was a bunch of like really young people were going to character judge were going to judge me based yeah. on like X, Y, and Z, right? And so they're like, "Let's see you do it. You can't even touch the net. You probably could never jump." Blah Love blah those blah. Ad hominems. Right? Yeah, yeah. They just rushed in, and so I was like, I couldn't help myself in a moment of weakness. I just posted a link to an article in the LA times when I high jumped six, six for the first time. Uh-huh. And I said, I said, you should not judge a book by its cover. The internet still bears evidence that is contrary to what you just said. Here it is. And then some people were like, Oh, like, you know, and then some people were like, Oh, live in the glory days. I said, well, since we're doing that, here's a video of me dunking when I was overweight and like on a nine foot 10 room, uh-huh. you know, just 10 years ago, since you guys are suggesting that I couldn't even do that. Yeah. And then like it silenced so many guys up. You know, and it's like, it's like, it was just a funny interaction, uh-huh. but it also was like, we're so in the moment and we're so um, narrowed to youth and the limited capacities of youth sometimes. I mean, up until 21, you, your decision-making capacities in your brain aren't even developed yet. Yeah. Well, why? Well, why? And what informs that? So can you imagine if you never have to take responsibility, what happens to that part of your brain? Uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's not developed. It atrophies. Yeah. Or doesn't even get to atrophy because it hasn't been developed yet. Now, here's the thing. I'm not blaming young people. But what I'm trying to say is we are in a place where things have gone awry. Yeah. So when we talk about free will, actualizing a given state of affairs, and only being able to choose that which is there to see, ultimately, yeah, um, both from a visionary standpoint and from an, an actualized standpoint, there is an ethical and moral dilemma. Mm-hmm. And the question becomes, are we called to something more? Yeah. I mean, I think you're talking about like uh, passive and active consumption in some ways, mm-hmm. you know, and so we have a, we have a monolithic status quo that we're a part of um, every day. It's always around us, you know, and you can put whatever names you want on it, but it's just the constant perpetual flow of information period, mm-hmm. you know, that you have no rest from like you have no rest. You know, even your limited sleep at night, you're probably falling asleep to a podcast or some crap on YouTube or whatever else it is, right? You're you're constantly engaging in this monolithic status quo. Mm-hmm. And with what you're talking about, there's a there's a space where imagination, like you're referring to, Cody, um, any sort of like speculation or searching or probing, like it doesn't go on when you're engaged a hundred percent when you're actively engaged in passive consumption. Yes. And that's uh that's a really tough thing to do. Mm-hmm. But it's also a tough thing to see, I think, because most of us are just like, no, no, I'm engaging with this stuff that I'm learning about and whatever. It's like, no, you're just sucking it in. Yeah. You're like mm-hmm. the you're like the blue whale going through yeah. the ocean with the open mouth. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you're probably getting small little fragments of mm-hmm. nutrients, but you'd have to get so many of those to actually be fed mm-hmm. that we don't have the capacity to take that in at the level we would need to for it to be sustaining. Yeah. And so we say things like, oh, I, I'll just get told things. That's how I learn. We don't learn through questions. We don't learn through uh, deeper conversations. We don't learn through sitting with the uncomfortableness of the lack of knowledge. We don't learn through the humility that allows us to go to other people and say, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Do you? Mm -hmm. Um, We don't, we just negate all those things. But we do it in such a way that we think that it's okay because we are surrounded 
by this monolithic status quo where everybody's like, no, but this is just what it is. This is just yeah, what it, it is. It creates the perception that um, it creates the perception of a truism. Like yeah. going back to the other episode, I said that when you, you know, something to the effect of like when you go to college, um, you, you know, it's like you, you want to be um, free to do um, and you don't want to be told what to do unless you already agree with what you're being told to do. And then <laughs> yeah. you get to pretend as though you've come upon it of yeah. your own accord. It's like you chose the video yeah. that the YouTube algorithm fed you. That you fed you. So you feel a sense of, of ownership. I chose this. But you've actually are. Um, so here, here's what I'm trying to say is when the culture, uh, when we as humans um, um, in the most ultimate confirmation bias way look to affirm our desires mm -hmm. by curating um, the kinds of people and things that only confirm our desires in, in actuality, yeah. uh, then there's no checks or balances and there's no counterfactuals. There's no alternative, even though it actually is there, you're just not able to see it. You're blind to it. And yeah. so in, before, one more thing is like, so then if you look at the heart, so if you go with the sort of a Greek idea, the kind of historic Greek idea, there's the heart and the mind. Mm -hmm. Greeks believe that the heart was the center of human desire. And so the desires well up in, in the mind processes those desires. So if the heart is broken, let's say, let's say desires have gone rogue and they're uh, discordant, but the mind rationalize them. Well, what happens is you begin to rationalize um, human desires that are antithetical to your good. And then you start to actualize those into culture making and then other people see it and it accords with their broken desires. And now you have a kind of a world that is an agreement around these kinds of issues. Yeah. And all of the things that are manifested or the majority of them are tainted and, and work against your best. But because there's no alternative, you can't know that. So you dig deeper into what I was saying last episode, the unclarity, mm -hmm. the confusion because that you have assigned the value and the notion or the sense that it is freedom. And so it is a literal unraveling. So ask yourself, uh, are attention spans smaller or greater? Do more people at the expense of knowledge, are more people knowledgeable or more confused? Is like We believe that knowledge would eliminate anxiety. Are people more anxious or less? Does fear rule more or less? So if we have, like, just keep going. Like, um, the last one I'll say, I was doing some research yesterday on populations and uh, sustainable economies. And um, uh, there are people that believe we're, we're heading into a population crash. Hmm. So, so real the numbers would suggest that. Yeah, real serious thinkers and really credible people. Uh, now, the media will spin things a certain way, but the real thinkers are, are thinking above what the media can do in a soundbite. And if you're a soundbite person, you don't have access to this because you haven't trained your brain to pay attention. Right. So um, if you're listening here, you, you must be, but to some extent. But so the point is, uh, the uh, when I was in working 10 years ago, I was working with people that were like, we need to euthanize people under five and above 60 because the population is getting too big and it's going to consume too many of our natural resources. This is the narrative, right? Yeah. Imagine that. And so here we are 10 years later. We may be at the the only time in this planet's history where we're at this, like this number of people populating the whole planet mm -hmm. because there is a cliff coming. And once the numbers decrease, there is no ability to sustain life. And so all the stuff, the data and the science said 10 years ago is completely wrong. And so 
I mean, I'm, I'm making a huge circumference around this particular issue of free will and calling. Um, because if it's big enough, then you, then you can't be so narcissistic as to think that it's just about you. Yeah. It's actually about you and generations and mm. your neighbor. And, uh, so anyhow, sorry, Cody, I'm, like I said, I'm pretty fired. No, up. no, it's good. I might be the most fired up I've ever been on a podcast episode and I don't exactly know why. <laughs> it's cause we were talking about hip hop. Like we 40 we talked about <laughs> hip hop for 40 minutes and it got me fired up. I love hip hop. <laughs> so just sort of like processing what you're saying you're talking about this sort of like inherited imagination that we receive that mm -hmm. that sets up boundaries for how we then go into the world and imagine possibilities. And the problem is that when that inherited imagination gets askew and it's not being based off of the actual like reality, mm -hmm. but it's based off of some alternative version or edited version of reality that forces us to continue as we're imagining possibilities. We keep narrowing things down in a direction away from like how the world actually works and what's good for humanity, mm -hmm. which leads us into this place of like the larger like social population at this moment. You mentioned the internet and the thing I was interesting about the internet is like not everyone's on the internet. Mm -hmm. So that, that colloquial ubiquity I think makes sense because it seems like it's everywhere but it still is only being accessed That's by right. a certain group of people. Yep. So it's not, the internet doesn't actually speak for everyone, mm -hmm. even though a lot of people definitely participate in it. So it doesn't speak for everyone, but it does speak authoritatively yes. to whether you've agreed with it or not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because we're living under, we're living under its authority right now in terms of the way uh, people are constructing policies mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to politics, the way, even the way uh, what's happening in the Ukraine, like when you talk about what's happening in Canada, we never get political. I resist that, but I, I won't go too far because I've tried to discipline us away from that. But, but um, so just to your, just to, to, to like enhance the point you're making is to say that um, not everybody does, but now they're being drug along. Mm. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's got a momentum going. It's got an unavoidable momentum because, because uh, conversations right now here, here. Okay. So two, a couple more anecdotes. Um, I've been looking at the smart cities, uh, 5g smart cities where nobody has a car. This is, this is actually the part of the, some of the plans are to build this into the infrastructure. I know some people will say that's great. It's great. But I don't think we're, we're thinking about how every um, physical ability to choose and interact is being taken away. We are creating a kind of Wally world. It like Wally is showing itself to perpetually be one of the most prophetic pieces of entertainment mm -hmm. that I think I've ever seen. And I knew it the day I saw it. And and here we are so much closer to that. And so, so uh, also uh, paperless currency, which has been a thing for like a long time. Credit card was a step in that direction. Credit reports reinforced in this, like, like we're moving somewhere and, Inflation is uh, eviscerating the value of the dollar and creating a greater argument for a savior-like ubiquitous value currency that is tied to your SEG or ESG score, which has to do with your ecological footprint. Um, these are real things that are happening that people are implementing and all of it's eviscerated from your hands and in the hands of a digital authority that you don't get to interact with or appeal to. That can, that can freeze your bank accounts. Because all your money is is um, is digital, and so so whether or not, like so this is like if you're the farmer and you don't really go on the internet, it's it it's already influencing, um, it's backing you into a corner. Yeah, it's going to create you, circumstances surrounding you that you eventually have to interact. You with. have to. How do you trade? How do you deal in? How do you deal in, in commerce? 
It's it's really interesting. I mean, we're really at a really critical time. I didn't expect it to go this route. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> no, keep, yeah. So anyhow, keep keep your thought going, Cody. What yeah, yeah. So I was just thinking about how that process happens of sort of like the narrowing of the imaginative possibility. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like as we're thinking about when we're dealing with like the possibilities, you know, I'm a person, I'm thinking about what could I possibly do in any specific circumstance. And I have desires that can either coincide with the actual real physical constraints that are around me. And I can have desires that don't coincide. So I can be like, I want to be a basketball player, even mm -hmm. though I'm like a skinny six foot tall white guy who can't play ball at all. So that could be, that would be a desire that's just like out of bounds of reality. It's not going to happen, but I can still have it. And so there's a sense where I can live in the imagination zone of that reality and imagine that I have the free will to do that as long as I'm not actually going out and trying to do it. Because as soon as I go out and try to do it, it's going to foreclose on that possibility because it's going to prove that I can't. And then I'll actually have to make a shift. So I feel like as a society, we, and a lot of people are in a position where in order to feel like they have free will, they have to be able to imagine that they can do anything and then they cannot act towards anything because if they actually do, it might prove that it can't happen, which yeah. then closes down their self-perception of that ultimate free will as opposed to the constrained free will. Yeah, the idea of free will is unrestrained, <laughs> and uh, so, expressive power. So then we basically like build a society where everyone constantly has to feel like they have the option of doing everything mm -hmm. and never is actually forced to do anything. Mm -hmm. And from there, that means that there are going to be things that sort of stick out like a sore thumb and eventually you're just going to say, I want to believe that I could do that, but I deep down know I couldn't and I'm tired of dealing with that issue. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to say that that whole category is null and void. Mm -hmm. So I don't even have to deal with it mentally anymore. And so I'm going to narrow the range of options and say, oh, no, only these actions yeah. or these occupations are the important ones because these are the ones that I can reasonably feel like I might have a shot at. And so we just continue to sort of sort out reality and say, nope, mm -hmm. not that, nope, not that, until we get a society... And I think that's where the whole like press towards the virtualization, the yeah, digitalization say, yeah, happens. Yeah, the meta, metaverse type stuff. Because yeah. from there, we can create a sort of secondary reality where it increases that sensibility that anything is possible. Yeah, it, cre it, it increases the imaginativity thing. And you have to house less of that imaginativity within yourself because it's being imagined for you according with your desires. So like if you want to bark like a dog, um, that's a socially acceptable thing, especially in this kind of imaginative space mm -hmm. and, 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 and it's a way, and then this goes into, you know, the stuff we talked about in the past, but like, it's also a way of avoiding, it's an evisceration of our physicality. Mm -hmm. It's a denial of part of our ontology. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you have people wanting to make the leak leaps into transhumanism, full integration of um, technology in our body, because the assumption is uh, somewhere in there still is like, there's a mind that can live independent of the body. And it doesn't account for the heart as far as desires goes. It doesn't account for whether or not there's a soul. And th these are um, uh, significant in historic discussions. Mm -hmm. They're not, you can't just wave a wand and say yes or no. And also, a lot of people like to cherry pick. So let's say there's no soul, but then there are also the people that love ghost stories and watching ghost videos on YouTube. And so they can't yeah. see the discrepancy in their thinking. It's too fractured and compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so this idea that you, you actually now, so progress and um, 
cultural and, and just evolution in general has the uh, postulation that you have to change and that actually is necessarily always good. And so, so what I love about that is good doesn't flow from evolve. There's no grounds. For, there's no technical grounds to say uh, uh, what yeah. is good because there's no logically aim. makes sense because you never get there. You never get there. There's so no it never aim. exists. Yeah. So it just becomes um, strictly materialistic, or you've got some quasi uh, uh, metaphysical uh, in, inter- intervention with materiality, and then you have to explain it. Yeah. And um, I've listened to a lot of the explanations in the last twenty years, and I've participated in a lot of discussion, read a lot of books. That's a huge conversation, and and if you just, you can tell when someone hasn't thought about this, you know, yeah. like you can, it's it's clear. Um, and the scary thing is most people aren't thinking about it, so they're cherry picking pieces and fragments of ideas, and they're assembling uh, really terrible digital mosaics that accord with their broken desires. Mm-hmm. So the the the, piecing, the piecemealness of the desire is accordant with the piecemeal fragmentation, yeah. and and that's when you get like. Um, you get sentiment. So I was thinking about Meet the Robinsons, mm-hmm. which I like that show, but it's a kid who gets adopted yeah, yeah. by his future family, mm-hmm. who's insane. Yeah. But the sentiment of desire of adoption is underneath it all. Yeah, yeah. The desire for purpose, a future, a hope, and a place mm-hmm. are all bound up in the story. But the context for it is pure insanity. <laughs> so you can have what you want, and it's not going to look normative. It's going to look extraordinary. It's going to look outside of bounds. And why? Well, that's where real freedom is found. And secretly, it's a confession that we're all pretty broken and confused. Mm-hmm. But we 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 don't know how to fix it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's really a confession. It's like a a prayer or something. It's like, here's this kid who whose son rescues him from the future so he can be the scientist he was always spent, supposed to be, so he can be the inventor with all the kooky eccentrics because... Um, you know, as a kooky eccentric in a lot of ways growing up, like growing up in that kind of family, um, that sounds good in sentiment, but in actuality, it hurts. In actuality, yeah. it's difficult. You know, when grandpa thinks he's a poached egg, it, it isn't as fun as yeah. the animation says. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So we tell ourselves these stories and then we move towards it and we have moved towards it in a serious way. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of that, what you're talking about, that sounds very close to the concept of hiding. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we busy ourselves with things. I mean, it's, you know, as a culture, we have an obsession with busyness, right? Where we're like, how are you? Well, I've been busy. It's like, we've all been busy. We live here right now. We know what's going on. Everybody's busy. Nobody's not busy. Like quit telling me you're busy. We know mm-hmm. you're busy. What are you busy with? Yeah. Like, uh, cause it's one of those things where it's like, well, I'm busy with, uh, based on the national averages, eight hours of social media a day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe you should stop being busy like that. Mm-hmm. But we hide in these places, mm-hmm. right? Um, cause a lot of stuff, it is kind of this hiding but it all goes back to a lot of things we've all talked about. Like, but we want the world to be bigger than what we experience it as. Yeah. And we want that in a deep sense. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and when we just kind of give into that status quo, it's, it's a hiding. Yeah. You know, we, we, we hide and kind of uh, keep ourselves separate from things. And I think some of it is, is what, what you're talking about. Like there's, there's, there's messiness involved in mm-hmm. a lot of this. Right. We, we would like, I would, I would like to think that my pure humanistic expression of going through and, giving in to free will and choosing where I am, I would like to think that's a very clean cut process, mm-hmm. right? I would like to be super fatalistic about it and say, as long as I've made the right choice, everything works. Everything's perfect. Mm-hmm. It's not hard. It's not work. Um, but if I can't 
if I can't guarantee that, I'll just hide. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the question and, becomes what? So the question is like, what are we hiding from? And I don't think I don't think it's an easy answer. I think no. it's, I think it's like a uh, really um, it's it's sort of um, yeah, it's it's like a blame shift in in enculturated in a multifaceted way that a lot of people agree with. And so we, yeah, we, we're like, yeah. Well, and I, I see that in early, early career stuff, even, you know, where it's like, Oh, well, you know, how, how's stuff going? Like, how is that progressing? And it's, and it's, um, it's kind of a hiding. I'm like, Oh, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm new at this. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really know how to do it. Then it's like, well, we don't have to hide behind those things. Actually. We can be humble and say, mm-hmm. it's not going well right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to, learn a few more things or ask better questions or maybe my studio practice isn't great. Like we don't admit to a lot of that, but we do kind of hide within these spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, we blame shift. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah. We change up the scenario a lot. Yeah. I mean, do you think a part of it is just like a very fundamental uneasiness with our finitude? Sure. That it's I just mean, like, I might even take it further. Like it's a, a constant denial of it. On yeah. A that's, that's what I think. I mean, the, the, when I think about it, the deep, deep emotion is just like, you are a limited person. You cannot be on top of everything. You cannot know anything. Everything's sort of in process, like you guys were saying, in terms of how we're obtaining knowledge and changing as people. And if you're the sort of person who just wishes that wasn't true and, and deeply wishes that you were in control of everything mm-hmm. and that there was no risk and that you could guarantee all outcomes, yeah, I mean, if that's what you want and you can't have it because just in terms of how reality is, you are not that type of thing. Mm-hmm then you're going to have to come to terms either with what you are or start creating a lot of artificial constructions to hide what you are. Right. Well, so, so kind of, kind of, I think that's there. So go, so I'm going to use a, another movie. I think it was called running with scissors. Did y'all ever see this movie? It was based on a book. It's about mm-hmm. a dad. He's a psychologist. Kids are dysfunctional. Um, it's like a, in that vein of, um, it was done in the spirit of like, um, Royal Tannenbaums. It has it has that kind of um, yeah. That not done as well, but I remember Laura and I going to see this years ago. I don't I forget how long ago this was. Um, two thousand six. Okay, yeah, I was gonna say about two thousand six probably. Um, and so the long and the short is the movie is sad and devoid of hope. Like all the um, cultural cons- constructed ways of dealing with uh, these issues and these problems. Um, are, are uh, uh, actually fail in the film. So you're really left at the end. And the I'm not kidding with you, and I don't mean this to be um, gross, but the film ends, and I remember just being so frustrated, and it was because it was so of our time at that particular moment. The film ends in a very postmodern way. So postmodernism uh, completely eviscerates meta narratives, completely eviscerates an appeal to hope outside of the self. Everything is sort of uh, Richard, like Richard Rorty would talk about, is uh, these are uh, uh, fractured identities and cultural constructions that are negotiated by by um, the majorities, mm-hmm. and they're situated ethics. They're they're always situational. They're never there's not there's nothing transcendent. So everything situational is predicated to subject, this kind of thing. So in this film, the dad, I mean, everything's just completely broken. Like nothing works. Everybody's in their worst place. There's no hope. At the end, the the dad's like. And I'm forgetting it exactly, but he's like, I found it. And he's like excited. And it, I forget exactly what he says now. I just remember that he um, calls everybody into the bathroom. 
and everybody sticks their head to look in the toilet and his literal feces uh, has come to a tip and it emerges out of the water of the toilet and he makes some statement about how the tip of that is 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 essentially like a sign of hope and i remember being like so frustrated because i was like this is the perfect metaphor for what we're talking about now because we're living so far into it which is you cannot admit that there might be more than you so what you do is you abjectly reduce everything down to your excrement Mm. you shrink yourself down inside to the size of someone that sees it as mount everest and then you ascend to the summit of of your own excrement and then you call it um, uh, so, so what you're doing is you're inverting yourself to the point that you have tricked yourself into, into feeling as though you are like, it's like, it's, it's a way of resetting expectations. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a kind of camusiological break. There's no, nothing else. Therefore, everything's absurd. Authenticate through your own actions. So, so, you know, here, are you all tracking with what I'm saying? Yeah. It's literally like in order to actually stick your head in the toilet, I'm being serious. Is to say that I'm so small that I see this as this huge thing that I can ascend. So you're descending and calling it ascension. You see what I'm saying? Not only do you have to, you have to simultaneously reduce the world and reduce yourself so that this new small world that accords with what you want the world to be primordial can now be the type of world that you are now so, so, so small that you can navigate and feel like you're having some sort of high, um, existential experience on with everything else still to be had and by the way you're also still uh bigger than it which means you make the rules so you're both god and you're both the human uh below and the the maker and the hero yes it's like we want to be god create a world and then incarnate ourselves down into it and walk around yeah so so literally that's a that was a secular story that um was really um popular it's a book and we went and saw the movie where, you know, we knew the book and, you know, and, and so like, I just remember being so discouraged by that because, uh, um, that's just a lie. Yeah. It's disingenuine to people in LA right now that are living in their own feces or like San Francisco's covered in human feces because, because, to, because people are destitute and struggling and suffering. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't work. It only works as a, a fragmented proposition under certain, certain tenets that you've already been preconditioned to assume. And for anyone who's there, then you just kind of go, I got to reset. It's a reset. Yeah. And, but it's not, you see, it's yeah. only, it's only a propositional uh, reset in the, in the mind, in the mind of the willing. Um, but I would argue that we have largely operated out of that sentiment uh, from that point till now. And, and so we're dealing with still being in the toilet bowl and not, and thinking we've ascended Mount Everest. Yeah. So there, um, in our house, there's a, there's a phrase that we've, we've thrown around a lot and we use with our kids, you know, cause with kids, they, they do have smaller worlds, right? So they, they have less experience, they have less knowledge. They just, they have different mental boundaries. So we understand the difference between adult and child, right? Oh, a child doesn't know that. They don't understand that. It's like, Hey, tell me about a bicameral legislature. Can you mm-hmm. explain it to me? No, I don't know what you're talking about. What did you just say? We get that separation, but somehow we think that we pass a certain point and now we're, we're in it. We know it all. We're good. I mean, even now, like I could ask a lot of adults, tell me about the bicameral legislature. And they'd say, I'm not sure what that is. Like, where do you go buy it? Um, you know, I don't know, but it could be just like, I have no clue. So we have, we've had this, this phrase that we use a lot, which is small worlds fill up quickly. Mm-hmm. And we use that uh, at times just as a reminder to our kids, 
you know, they're, they're, they're freaking out. They're melting down. They're having yeah. a bad day. And we're like, why is this so bad? And it's, and it's not that we have to relativize it or contextualize mm-hmm. it, but it's that we always have to remind them, like, there's actually a lot more outside of this mm-hmm. that you're not engaging with. Yeah. And so for you to have this experience, everything has to be tiny and mm-hmm. small. You make your world a little snow globe that you can shake up. Mm-hmm. The snow's going to fall now. It's not going to snow. It's not going to fall later. Do what, do what we want. Um, but it's always a, and even my wife and I remind each other of this. We're always like, hey, oh, yeah. small worlds fill up quickly. Because yeah. we start talking about something, we're like, you're right. That shouldn't be on the radar. Mm-hmm. It's actually too small to be a worry. Because if that's something I'm bothered by, then there are things of magnitude higher mm-hmm. that either are worse or are so much better yeah. that it makes it somewhat irrelevant in places. Yeah. And it maybe, and so we'll pivot a little bit, but maybe in, in that, like we'll, we'll kind of get to our, I think we've created like a big context, but kind of to your point, uh, in that small worlds fill up quickly mindset, then the idea, so it's like that plus the thing we've, we've talked about in the past that um, somebody else coined, but the, uh, I think it was Lewis that coined it, it was chronological snobbery. Mm-hmm. So qu- chronological snobbery means, well, the answers to what ails me now can't be back there somewhere because yeah. we've evolved. We're past that point. That is another way of saying what I've been trying to say earlier, which is we call confusion, freedom, and progress. And so we keep going into the blender and getting more blended and going, that's success, although it's not satisfying me, which means it must be down there further. And so we're still, you know, in some ways, like paradoxically, we're still to kind of bust up the point I made earlier. We're still sort of digging further into the the, the toilet bowl and, and we're going down thinking it's up. You see what I'm saying? Kind of makes you think of like, I don't know if you guys ever have been making soups that like required them to be like partially blended. Mm-hmm. And so you like stick your immersion blender and you blend it up and you kind of like over blend a little bit. And you're like, oh man, this texture's weird. And you either have a choice like stop, <laughs> maybe throw some other stuff in to get that texture back or just like, maybe we just blend it a little bit more. It'll make more sense. And mm-hmm. so you just keep pressing that button until eventually you get a total eviscerated mash and it's just terrible Yeah, because you just double down on the same thing to try to get to a solution when you really should have like stopped taking stock of everything and said, maybe we should do something different this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's called turning away. I, mean, I said that earlier. It's like stopping. It's too risky to stop from, for us though. I mean, yeah. even, even it, it's difficult. You say all this, but you know, I'm still, still, um, you know, we're all wrestling, right? Like yeah. there's a, there's an admission of, um, I was thinking about what you were saying, Gareth, with your kids. And it's like, you know, the, the thing about kids that are wonderful and less people are having them, by the way. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're learning less people are learning this lesson. Yeah. Which is part of this conversation in a way, but it, kids teach you a couple things. They teach you that, um, they need your voice to call them out of themselves. So yeah. when they're, yeah. when they're, when they're, I remember my daughter, Ava was in my wife and my wife had a little amniotic fluid. We had to go from 28 weeks forward every week to have her tested. Mm-hmm. And we got to, so we would talk to Ava. Hold on, baby. You know, keep coming. Keep yeah. growing. Dad's here. And she was responsive to my voice. Mm-hmm. So when she was born, she knew our voice. Yep. Because we were calling her. And um, and then, uh, so I continue to call her. You know, she's 12 now. And I'm still like, there's still more for you, sweetheart. I'm still laying out stuff for her. Mm-hmm. All my kids, right? Yeah, yeah. Neighborhood kids. Hey, there's more. Hey, there's more. This podcast. Hey, there's more. Mm-hmm. So um, we are. We require um, externalized voices 
voice to call us into more, but there has to be something more to be called into. Yeah. And having kids gives you a sense of that. But what happens is we've abandoned that and we don't, we think we've actually done the opposite. We tend to celebrate youth. And so we tend to look for savants and prodigies. And we always think the, the earlier, the purer, the more hope there is grounded in the purity of the person, which is super weird. Love to do a podcast on that. Um, very romantic, very romantic. And also possibly a fragment of, of, of actual reality where there is a child who's pure, but there's a, the, the need to find it on, on, um, sort of unblemished, if you will, mm-hmm. um, means that there's a full disregard of it coming from anybody else or anyone else that is not operating in that, that space. And so that has been uh, in the water for a long time and has been failing. And so um, adults then have started to adopt an indefinite adolescent disposition so they can just in- occupy the gap of the failure of seeing that in other in youth culture. So everybody is resisting dying and resisting getting old and resisting. Um, and so we've abandoned the notion that we need to grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, we've abandoned, we've assumed the, the, the notion that you, uh, you got to stay down. And then we've called that up. You see, you see how it keeps it. That same point I'm trying to make is like, is like iterated throughout. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so the idea that at some point you stop and say, there must be more, it, it's uh, exceedingly not on the table for some. Um, but we will look to authoritarian ubiquity um, uh, uh, of controls through uh, things like the internet. Like we will submit to something else to sustain us while we pretend these things. Well, if, if which is an admission, sense. which is an admission that we don't have the free will we think we have. Yeah, so, but if, yeah. it makes sense that if you describe sort of like that childlike state, that requires an authority figure like a parent to mm-hmm. caretake and lead and and uh, usher in that child to maturity. If then all the adults wish they were children because all the value structures are based on youth and the purity and yes. things like that, the adults can't afford to grow up and become the authorities. Nope. So they have to offset that and say, well, we can create these potentially digital, algorithmic, um, artificial structured authorities to allow us to strive after maintaining our youth so mm-hmm. we can continue to obtain and keep a hold of that that youthful purity that we value so much as long as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. I mean that's that's a within the framework that's a totally reasonable that's conclusion. Right. Exactly. That's the ubiquity. I mean that that's getting at it. Like that's getting at exactly mm-hmm. it. The question is just are the fundamentals of that that presupposition yeah. Valid. Valid. Or, or, or and they, are these like sort of structures that we're instituting so that way we can live this sort of very narrow, truncated life? What happens when those structures kind of blow up? That's right. And so another way of saying it is like, how's it going? Yeah. How's it working? And <laughs> Gucci we, baby. Yeah, Gucci baby. And if we and if we <laughs> seriously, and if we, you know, all all it's going to take, which is what some people talk about is a kind of uh, uh potent like I think at the who or whatever, um, have talked about the um, Klaus Schwab. There's a villain. Good night. Take a good look at that guy and listen to him talk about the world, and you'll you you should sh- you should shake in your boots. But he talks about uh, the uh, not if but when uh, singularity uh, comes and destroys the internet. 
and all the power goes out. Yeah. When the yeah. power goes out, then you'll know how unreal everything you've been putting your hope into yeah. is. I, I'm not going to lie. I'm not prepared for the power to go out. I'm not a, a survivalist, but I recognize the truth that if that happens, it will, it will, you will see true humanity for what it is. Absolutely. And a lot of things will be proven to be false. Mm-hmm. Yes. Not your choice, not a matter of what you willed and therefore valid. It will just be proven false. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just what it is, you know? Well, I think that's one of the powers of digital spaces for good and ill, but very often for ill, is that we create these digital spaces, we interact through digital tools like smartphones and computer screens, and we create these plausibility structures of a world within a world. Mm-hmm. Um, in my head, I've always called it sort of like a shell world. Mm-hmm. And you can enter into it, and for some reason, our brains are able to take this shell world, like the internet, the virtual spaces, things like that, and inhabit them as if it was a real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a really interesting thing. Like, totally. Th- that's just like a feature of humanity that our brains can do something like that. Because yep. like foxes aren't doing things like that. Birds mm. aren't. Yeah. Birds aren't conceiving of like a world around a world that they're entering into as opposed to the real world. Although statistically 40% of all dogs in America are watching TV for a certain amount of time during their days because people are leaving the TV oh, on for their dog. So they're, they're, they're indoctrinating <laughs> their animals um, into the same values. But just, just, I mean... And dogs are watching. Yeah. It's very interesting to your point. Kind of. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I lost where I was going. I'm so sorry. Yeah, all that to say is like we, we create like this this shell world of the internet and you know yeah. metaverse, all those things. And the matrix. The matrix. It's all predicated on that layer of technology. Did you all see it's worth looking at this? This to your point. Did you see I have a picture of it? Did you see the um time? the cover of this time article um oh gosh where did i did i get rid of the picture it's it's pretty amazing let's see is it just like the the headline or the actual image it's about 2045 and it's got a picture of the back of someone's head (laughs) and they have the uh, cord plugged into the back of their head and it looks um it's the matrix it's literally the matrix it's on the cover of time Oh, yeah, time, 2045. 2045. Take a look at it. Y'all take a look at it. Singularity, movement, immortality, and removing the dot, dot, dot. There it is. 2045, the year man becomes immortal. There you go. That is, so So redefinition of immortality as a, I mean, it's, <laughs> there's so much to say. Like, this is not, um, they're not joking in that article, by the way. That's not a joke. Oh, if anything, time does it. It always takes itself too seriously. Yeah. There's no joking there. That's what people are working towards. It's amazing. Yeah. So we, we, we're, we're, you know, we, we have choices to make on what mm-hmm. states of affairs we actualize, but it has to go back to like, what are we? And so I would say human anthropology is uh, at stake in this, but I'm not going to say any more about that right now. So what do you think of the idea? So something I sometimes say to myself is that humanity is to the earth as the mind is to the body. In the sense that, like, we have minds and bodies, and they're coexisting. And as much as we'd like to think about all sorts of stuff, like our bodies are a constraint. Mm-hmm. And so, if we start doing things real weird, mm-hmm. the body shuts down. The body lets us know, "Hey, 
can't keep doing this this way. Mm-hmm. So when if you just sort of expand that out to like humans on the globe and humans are sort of acting as the mind of the world, but the earth still exists with all of its forces and its presence yeah. and its ways of doing things. Do you think that there's just sort of like an inevitable kind of backhand from nature or creation that resets some things for us? Well, I would say, I would say it a different way. If I, and I don't, and I, I'm not going to stand by this because I haven't thought about it. So I'm just listening to what you're saying. And I'd say, I would say that humans are to the earth what heart and desire is to the body. Okay. And I would say that it's running around like a chicken with its head cut off. So the mind is greater than the desire of the human. And so the heart is running rampant. And the question is, will the mind intervene and say, stop it? Or has it? You see what I'm saying? Hmm. So I would just, in that picture, I would say, the, but, but here's the thing. The heart thinks it's the mind. So that's what makes it problematic. I see. Raw desire assumed as rationality. Raw, broken desire, smoldering in any direction it wants. It's like, it's like rotten food at the back of the fridge that was once good. And instead of actually removing it, you actually reorient your fridge and you adjust your taste buds to assume that the more rotten it gets, the better it is. And you acquire a taste. Mm-hmm. And so then you have to start to rechange the you reconfigure refrigerators to actually accommodate the production of the rot. So you, you put the good thing in so it becomes rotten so you can get it and you've convinced yourself it's good. So how does that work in context of the, the phenomenology discussion where with all of our desires running rampant, there is still a reality that is existing yeah. that is having effects. Reality is that is not under our control. And so it's under our stewardship. It's under our influence, mm-hmm. but it's not under our absolute control. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think that like in that space, like then the, uh, the achievement of fulfillment requires more and more and more work on our part to act like we're receiving. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not, you know, like a, I can't just jaunt off for a couple of days and have the relaxing weekend. Now I've got to resign from my job, get a different job, it's got to be remote. I've got to be traveling every week to a new Airbnb to do my remote work because it's, that's what it takes so much more to be fulfilled. So as the gap between what is and what we have made becomes wider, mm-hmm. then it's harder and harder to get anywhere close to the what is. So yeah. it just takes more and more. And yeah, it's more where work it wears down. So so it gets back to the okay. So it gets back to the weird uh, philosophical question of a necessary being. So there's an old website. It's like necessarybeing.net. You take a test and you'll find out whether you, you answer the questions and you find out whether or not you believe uh, reality requires a necessary being outside of. Uh, so you just take the test. It's great. It's like I used to goof around with that thing. Like, I mean, gosh, this is years and years ago. I don't even know. It, the website looks like a prototype to like, um, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, like pre-HTML. Yeah, I mean it's 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 and it's made by philosophers, so you know it's bad. There's uh-huh. no aesthetic value. There's nothing. It's it's real bad. You know, it's <laughs> sorry all the philosophers out there. Yeah, shout out. But uh, y'all know sometimes you're not very good at aesthetics, <laughs> unless you're a philosopher. It's, it's not my field. It's not my field. Um, but uh, philosophers compartmentalizing? No. <laughs> so, but it's great as far as taking the test goes. I mean, you just answer the questions honestly and you find out what the answer is. It's fantastic. But 
And so another way of talking about this is the infinite regress question. So um, without a prime mover or a causal agent that is non-contingent contingent reality, uh, then then um, then there is an infinite regress, which just voids the whole discussion in a way. And, and you're like, it's, it's it is fundamentally absurd. Then, um, in in terms of rationality and um, cogency and like all the all the the things that are wonderful, like love, joy, peace you know, mm -hmm. relationships, all these things start to become really, really, um, um, they don't make sense. So when you talk about the, the reality, reality has a certain level of resistance and it has possibly something to do with the, uh, necessary beingness thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but also, um, I would say it groans under the weight of it's, it's begging to be cared for it's crying out to be cared for. It's meant realities uh, yeah, being very vague here, nebulous, but it's reality is meant to be um, stewarded and cultivated. That's the point of the call, by the way. So the call is, is we are, uh, as we voice the call, as you step into what you were sort of meant for, if you will, uh, stuff starts to, it, it doesn't, here's the thing, working in a, in a you know, pragmatic sense is, is not the, it's not precluding suffering or difficulty or pain is to deal uh truthfully with reality which 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 includes death and suffering because it's unavoidably and absolutely a part of the equation um and it, it and then it and it's to deal with the spiritedness of people and say well we are uh, more people in america right now say they're spiritual than not mm -hmm. and in the great modernist project of science eliminating all superstition and religion including spiritualism uh has not worked it's actually done the opposite people are more spiritual so so you can't have the matrix without spiritualism it's a very spiritualized film the series you know in fact it, it only works the best uh, uh according to our kind of uh modern sensibilities in the first film when it's left in the context of mystery which doesn't land the plane, but the harder it goes, the more it has to land the plane, the more it defaults to spiritualism, kind of like Dali's paintings did. He had to borrow from religious symbols because mm -hmm. surrealism was insufficient in communicating what he was experiencing, but he was unwilling to deal with the necessary beingness that informs the religion he was operating. Uh, he, was, he was instrumentalizing. And, um, and so uh, put it another way. I mean, this is so weird that I'm saying, I, like I'm somewhere different today, but, so like why why are most films default to savior motifs why is harry how, well they just go through how many movies require someone to sacrifice themselves for everybody else i mean i'd love to make a list yeah why do we love that story so much well i mean don't answer it but just just sit on it why does that story resonate with us so much it's always a guilty we confess through the means of other people and through the means of story that we are in need, but we can't, we just can't admit it. It's funny because yeah. the, the alternate story that I think gets at some similar needs is like the love story. Yeah. So you have those two, there's the save, which, and a lot of times they're combined, obviously, but mm -hmm. like you have the save, the savior sacrifice story. And then mm -hmm. you have like the love story mm -hmm. and both of those are these sort of continuous, like we're retelling them yeah. again and again and again and again, because they, get at something mm -hmm. that we want to requires people 
And you have to really acquire a taste for the bleak monotone story that is overly intellectualized. Like you have to overly intellectualize and divorce yourself from your longings because you see a value in the uh, bravery and association of being like connected to the high and highly abstract story that has no narrative arc. It has no real risk, no consequence to no no need, no need for a savior, no need for someone to jump in and lay down their life for you. That kind of thing. Like the, the other interesting genre would be the, realist i don't know if i'm not a film buff so i don't know if this is like the technical term but i think about like some like turkish films that i've seen where mm-hmm. they're just like so present yeah. and like such a real narrative of like mm-hmm. stuff that's happening in this village it's very localized scene it's like three hours long and in sort of i guess you could say the best word i can think is like in an apophatic way mm-hmm. it asks for a savior because mm-hmm. there is none but the, the suffering absence. is in, yeah the, in right. the absence of any savior yeah. narrative the question is left like man wouldn't it be so much better for these people in the story if there was one in the absence of a savior you have a man bringing his family into the toilet bowl looking at his own excrement yeah. and, and calling it the savior or just just like a really like a, a movie about the sorts of things that people really do experience exactly. in suffering and hardship uh, right without now, necessarily. Right now in the Ukraine. Exactly. I mean, I by the time this episode releases, I don't know where it's really things will land, but it's ha- difficult. It's happening right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, 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 and also in this, as we construct uh, semantic games and jargon, and the, the more uh, devolved we become in some ways, and, or dehumanized, I would say, the more jargony we become. Like we start to actually create uh, more jargon to hide behind, buffer ourselves behind. And we, um, as long as the jargon stuff becomes uh, endangered, there's actual safety in it. So it's paradoxical. If I'm more endangered, I'm more safe. And you are more the problem. And it, it's polarizing us to pieces right now. You know, so like when I look at the landscape, like, like how does free will relate to uh, creativity or to calling? It's like, well, um, we, we, there's some kind of admission that we're not enough. Um, there's an admission of the fact that I'm, I'm, um, able to voice, you know, um, an actualized states of affairs mm-hmm. and, but my heart's kind of messed up. So what do I need? You know, I need like a new heart. I need some kind of, um, direction forward. Like, um, there needs to be a dose of humility. I know this is not everybody in every case, but I, I, I'm just thinking like, there's like a we, there's like a take a deep breath, and um, <laughs> start dealing with the questions you're afraid to ask, and and also consider that you might be wrong about a whole bunch. Like you might be. I mean, I remember going through this. I I had to admit that I was wrong about so much, including the kinds of people I judged, including the kinds of people that I didn't I refused to be associated with because I felt like it would be death to be associated with certain types of people. I mean, it was a full unraveling for me. Mm-hmm. But once that happened, um, there was also a, a, a kind of freedom that had to do with uh, the shedding of certain cultural constructs and the ability to see more clearly. And by seeing more clearly, um, I could call for help and receive it and then follow and trust and, and start to voice maybe a little bit better of a, um, a sense of what, what I think humans are made for and how we work and, and so on. Yeah. Um, but so I think the, um, just the idea of calling, I really appreciate when you broke down the four components in that first episode where you identified the desire, affinity, opportunity, but then like 
oh yeah, there actually has to be someone who's like affirming or actually yeah. doing the calling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's easy to diminish that and make calling an experiential feeling of self-validation, yeah, which makes basically the person who's experiencing that quote unquote calling, they become the end point. So they become the start point of the calling, but it's for themselves, unto themselves, you know, for their own development. As soon as you introduce the idea that there's an outside party who is performing the calling and validating those mm-hmm. three other factors, it puts the calling into a relational perspective and yeah. then says, hey, this calling may not actually just be about you. It includes you. That's right. It's going to... Truly inclusive. Yeah. It's like, it's going to be you as you are, sort of like if you think about a capacity as like a vector that has a direction and magnitude. Mm-hmm. So it's like this... So we've identified a direction maybe, and now it's time for you to grow in magnitude. Mm-hmm. And someone outside of you saying, step into this. Yeah. Um, it creates a lot more questions, I think productive questions about how we then go forward to yeah. navigate this life and but this all, calling. Totally, and what it implicates is the thing that we've abandoned, which is taking responsibility yeah. for it for yourself. And the notion that we actually might be responsible to other people That's as right. well. We might yeah. actually be responsible. Which I think is important to like go back to the original definition. <clears throat> At the beginning of the episode where you talked about free will as the actualization. It's, of, yeah, it's but the it's ability not, to actualize a limited state of affairs. But it's not the self-actualization of that limited state of affairs. Exactly. Which is huge because I think a lot of times when we hear in our current culture actualization, we go to the pop psychology garbage of like self-actualization. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to think it hard enough that somehow it's going to manifest itself into a physical reality, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, there's a, I, I can barely self-actualize getting out of bed when my alarm goes off. So there's yeah. no way I'm going to do it for a career. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, but I think it's a hugely important thing because if we talk about actualization, then what it does is it doesn't remove the, the, it, it actually keeps the parameters of relational dynamics as a possibility. Mm-hmm. And it keeps intact the parameters that at times that actualization will be on you mm-hmm. and not on the relationships. Mm-hmm. That those actually all can occur together. So you don't bear the weight of the just like the despondency of self-actualization. Um, but you also are not 100% is not 100% contingent on other people. So there's not a luck component involved, mm-hmm. but instead it is a better place in the middle where those relationships preclude luck and all that stuff's gone. And the fact that those relationships are there mean that it's not all on you. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about this free will, it actually becomes a very uh, community-based thing, mm-hmm. right? So even part of my free will is I can do something like art because I do not have to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. I can do something like design because I do not have to know how to fix my car. Mm -hmm. That I can exist in community with people Mm -hmm. in such a way where the things, because my my free will in that limited capacity is going to definitionally definitionally be different than yours, Cody, than yours, Mm -hmm. Ryan. Um, But if we exist in community, it becomes inconsequential how small my space is because collectively we actually can do a lot more things if we are looking at things that are good and true and, and actually necessary, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a, is a good way to even uh, help people see in the, con- the you know, the, the sort of hackneyed conversation of like, well, uh, ha- I, my kid wants to go to art school. How do I get them to do something else in life? And it's like, well, why do they need to? Mm-hmm. Like if there's, if there's certain things that make this a, a choice worthwhile, other people could be the accountants yeah. and dentists. And doctors and lawyers. Because the thing about the call is the call is the break-in moment where you get, potentially you get 
given the opportunity to consider something that you previously have not been able to imagine for yourself. Yeah. So if you have like, and I, you know, this is something that I think through, you know, like if someone was to come to me and say, Hey, I know you do this job and you do these things, but, um, have you ever thought of this other thing? Mm -hmm. Maybe hypothetically I hadn't, but then I would have to take that call or that statement of that outside person. And that would be a whole new category that I would have to mull over and consider and look at my life and maybe get some advice. And it could potentially open up a opportunities for my life to go in a direction or, you know, anyone hypothetically in the same situation, just opportunities that they had never considered because until that point, they just thought, well, this yeah, is my no, life. That's right. And this is, these are the, this is the range of where I think I can go with it. Mm -hmm. So that, that call as an active breakthrough to pull us out of the limited range of imaginative possibilities that we've been operating in, I think is essential, especially when you're dealing with potentially a call to do something like the arts in a society that maybe has a very poor understanding of the value of the arts. Yeah. Um, so then it becomes doubly helpful because you're not necessarily in a place, a larger society that would be affirming a step towards mm -hmm. that direction without a specific call to get you there. Yeah. So in, in that, and kind of also in tandem with what Gareth was getting, alluding to the, it, to put it in, in, in first abstract terms and then anecdotal terms. So in abstract terms, we're one humanity. That's our ontology. And then, and so that's our unity. Our unity is our humanity, as much as people want to say that. So we're not so radically different that we don't share in our common ontology. So we're humans. And then, and then within that, we have uh, a common uh, capacity for uh, calling that then becomes also uh, diversely individuated calling, if you will. And not everybody is. So there's like uh, unified callings and then diversified callings. And that relates to the world. There's an accordance and possibly. Um, that which is outside of that. So getting at that necessary being relationship is kind of a big picture kind of thing. And so, and it, so to the point of like, you can't actualize yourself without others is actually so true. And so like my favorite example of that, and I experienced it with my friend, John, who passed away, but is the inklings. Uh, my wife, Laura was reading the book on Lewis talking and I always forget. We always forget the Charles thing. Williams. Yeah. Charles Williams. And um, I think, I think it's Williams. So like, so the three of them, Tolkien, Williams, and Lewis, just put it there. Um, it was it was Williams, I think, that made that pass first. I can't remember, but one of them made Tolkien laugh in a way that no one else could. And I experienced with my buddy John. Nobody made my, me laugh like my friend John. Nobody made um, Tolkien laugh like this friend. And the laugh died when the friend died. So yeah. here's here's what I'm saying: is the potential to laugh like that was there, but not without the other person. And if that's true at that level, it's sort of the same things I was saying about the color stuff yesterday or last episode. Um, there's blue, but blue becomes more. Yeah, It has the a, a potential, but it cannot bring the variations to bear without the context drawing it out. So so there is a, a intention relationship where we're both common humanity and then we're individuated. So we're unity, diversity, simultaneous. Mm -hmm. It's not one or the other. It's simultaneous. And it's a mutual reality where we mutually enhance each other. So I've said in other ways, um, people look at kids, they look at my, my kid acting, uh, being squirrely and say, I could never have kids. Well, I remember saying that, but then I had Ava and Ava was, um, uh, uh, as big as my elbow and my wrist. Mm -hmm. 
you know, as big as my, and I remember the first time I bathed, I've said this before on this episode, on this podcast, but bathing her and rubbing her back the first time, my wife was too scared. We were so nervous. She was so tiny because she was an undersized baby. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at her and she fit so well in my arm. She just laid there, her little legs hanging off and her little hands dangling by my wrist and her little head just resting there and just rubbing her back as gently as I've ever touched anything in my life. Now, I never, I had never known that kind of gentle touch. I had never known that kind of warmth. And in that moment, I realized that my ability to be a father was perfectly the same size as her actual size and that she was drawing affections out of me that did not exist until she did. And then she and I grew and, and continued to grow to kind of, kind of make the point. That's true of love relationships. That's true of, um, uh, of the things we do. Uh, there's things about us that we cannot actualize about ourselves unless we deny that, that premise and, and go inward and act like that is actualization, which typically becomes spelunking into caverns of confusion. And then the echoes of your own voice confuse you into thinking that someone's calling you further into yourself. And that's where anxiety comes. And that's why if you look at the data, people are utterly anxious everywhere. It's, it's rampant. At some point, you have to say why. But what we're doing is we, we don't admit it, so we blame shift and create really, really uh, anemic media narratives that kind of like appease our conscience in the moment. And then we live in such temporary moments that two seconds later, it's like um, the biggest one for me, which is super contentious, but it's like, um, you know, anybody who I'm not, this is dangerous, I'm not gonna chase it down too far, but anybody who was complaining or saying that maybe natural immunity would be a thing with the vaccine. And it was like people being kicked off the internet, silenced, told they were anti-science, told they were deniers, just completely berated. And then uh, who comes out and says, or whatever the World Health Organization says, hey, uh, studies are showing that natural immunity is superior right now in dealing with Omicron. It just came out. And how many people actually lost their jobs in their lives because they simply said that? This is what happens when we have no depth, no capacity, and we are default to a a faulty system to dictate for us what to do. And also that dictation... uh when when it's there, it it it's not just that it like allows this stuff to happen, but it it forces uh, it it forces a singular uh, conversation like we've talked about, right? And I think that has to be like restated over and over again. Is mm-hmm. that um, you know you you can't even because it, if it exists in such a way, you can't even dissent because being wrong is a, a great sin, right? Because mm-hmm. you can't be you can't be wrong because somebody somebody's definitely right. But you're also not allowed to ask the questions of what moves towards rightness or wrongness, right? So, um, so again, coming back to this idea, like you mentioned earlier, of like seeking, of probing, of moving towards bigger things, yeah. Um, you know, it's all tied up in this, mm-hmm. you know. So, so who gives a crap if uh, somebody's wrong about it? Yeah. Right. Like, say wrong things. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. Yeah. If we're not, you're going to be wrong there, anyways. Yeah. Like, somebody's going to be wrong. Here's the irony: you were wrong anyways. Yeah. But to like, but to destroy people for sharing things like all that does is create even further uh, an anxiety and fear about searching for anything. Yeah. You're just like, just tell me, just tell me. And that's where I said, that's what I said the last episode. We want to be told, but we want to act like we're actually deciding. And we only want to be told when it already accords with what we want to hear. It, 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 It becomes a charade. It's like watching my kids play dress up. It's not real. 
And so it has no power to deal with reality as it is. Mm -hmm. And you're unwilling to admit that there is a reality that is not perfectly safe, but requires us to cultivate a world that flourishes to the best of our good that possibly we are made for or called to and um, includes the best of what gets your gander when you you glimpse something in your creative practice in your studio. Yeah. Like the, so this comes back to your question about what happens to the reality in the phenomenological sense. When you get glimpses, that's the groan. That's not even the best of it. The best that you're experiencing in your creative practice, I would argue, is merely a phantom of what would be if we were oriented well towards these things. So you're you're getting just the groan and the ache of a world that is begging to be made into something wonderful. You're not even getting the splendor of it, but yeah. but relative to everything else, it appears as though it's splendor. You're making me think of an earlier episode where you were talking about like um, asking the question, is there so much to reality that if we actually sort of had unveiled eyes, we would just be so astounded by what's all, what mm-hmm. all is actually there that it would sort of knock our socks off and maybe cause us to question like what sort of activity I think we, we would do. be incinerated in some way. Yeah. I really do. I think we would be decimated by it. Mm-hmm. I, I th- yeah. So is that yeah. just that idea of like we catch these glimpses there's possibly probably a lot more there. Mm-hmm. And then the question just becomes like how do we access that? Why aren't we accessing that? What you know yeah. how, how do we get from glimpses of groaning yeah. to yeah. Why is it veiled to us? 4D experience of, of Some, reality. Something that um, I'm just, I hope he doesn't mind. So something that Taylor White texted me about the issue of like fun and play and like digging into play. Forgive me if I, I shouldn't say this, but I just it stuck out so hard with me. I told Gareth it was such a great statement. He said like sometimes like you back into something I'm paraphrasing something to the effect of like play actually can sort of bring about something lethally serious. And I loved the word lethally because yeah. mm-hmm. I, I was like, I think that's like so spot on, so spot on. Yeah. So notice in all of this conversation, I, I'm not saying that in Norris Gareth or anybody, like you're on here now, but you would agree, <laughs> I guess. But no, I'm, not insinu- I'm not suggesting that this is a killjoy. No. I'm saying that we've confused the toilet bowl for the best the world has to offer uh, and I'm including the ne- the necessary being thing. Go find the website. I don't know if it exists anymore. You might get like a um, yeah, it looks for it. I can find it. You yeah, couldn't find uh, it anymore. Yeah. Don't, don't click the insecure links and get like a yeah. Russian bot. Yeah, yeah, that's like, it's like I think it was like necessary.net, but I can't remember anymore. But I figured at some point it probably wouldn't exist. But gosh, it was fantastic. Um, <laughs> if it says .dot net .dot ru, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and we're we're like running headlong into the time twenty forty five article where it literally shows an image that looks exactly like the matrix with the piece plugged in. And I'm just saying, okay, so I'll make my own personal prediction. Um, I will, I, people like me, Gareth, people, probably people like all of us to the culture ahead of us in the future will look more like the Amish to the culture that is now. Cause at some point there's going to be people that are like, I don't want immortality. If by immortality, you mean, being plugged into a computer because I have no assurance. I'm going to need someone who, who can actually, here's what you need. Here, here's your, here's your litmus test for whether or not you should believe something. Someone has to die, go forward and come back and testify to it. So in any belief system, you need person who conquers death and comes back and says, I did it. It's safe to go ahead. 
So we'll need, so if for so, this future reality where we're plugged in, we've defeated death by digitizing our consciousness. So the digitized conscious has to person. come back. We have to have a first person who's willing to go do that. Basically, probably destroy any chance of them like getting their body back. Yeah. But they have to come back, though. And we have to have absolute assurance that they can come back into their senses and testify to the fact that in a sensory way, it's not lost. It's not hell. Because yeah. we don't know what it's like to exist without senses. That's See, that's the thing that trips me out is there's just so many assumptions about the digitization of consciousness of the mind that it like looks really cool when you've made a cool TV show about it or Mm -hmm. like written a cool book and you've imagined how it could be. But the actual technical reality of like separating a consciousness from the astronomically immensely complex sensory organ and and just like functional thing that the body is, we have absolutely no precedent for understanding how that happens, Mm -hmm. how that affects my if I just ripped my mind out of my body, there's nothing to say that like I wouldn't immediately go crazy, like just completely insane. Yeah, it may be. So let me give you, I got a, I got a real example. I had, uh, I guess what some people call like sleep paralysis. I woke up one morning and I had no feelings at all. Mm-hmm. And my eyes, so my eyes didn't move, but my sight could see my eyelid as though it were inhibiting my sight and I could see just under it. Think about that for a second. So I thought I, I, because in that moment, I have no precedence for what this is. I have no sense, nothing, not even my eyelid is moving. I was like this, I got, you know, I guess I was laying on my bed. I thought I died and I was stuck in my body. There's no, your, your rationale is like, oh my gosh, I've died. Mm. And I panicked, but there's nothing to panic with. Yeah. Cause the whole sleep paralysis there's no turns sense. off your body's ability there's no to sense. change. So it was literally nothing. There was nothing. There was just thought and sight. What do we value the most? Was thought empirical. Now, what do we value now? Sight. What are we building towards? A world that exists on thought and sight. What are we excluding? The body that it houses it and activates and motivates and differentiates. What are we eviscerating? The need for differentiation. I don't got to drive a car. I don't got to pay attention to the texture on the road. I don't got to... I don't got to turn my arms. I don't, I just carry a phone in my pocket and everything opens up transactions. I don't even got to like give someone money and look them in the face and be a human and actually be, be the uh, most profound expression of hospitality, which is to welcome people into your space and to embrace them as someone both united and distinct from you. We, we, we eviscerate that and then it becomes plausible. So then when you get to the, uh, the world beyond um, and you're there, you have put yourself in the terminus that is, in my estimation, a form of hell. And there's no going back. There's not. So do, what do you think is going to happen? Well, in the matrix, then there'll be the work of going further down into redundancy by trying to create habitable, body, habitable bodies in a non-material space that can trick your brain into believing, trick your consciousness into believing it's experiencing. Because once you leave that, you leave all the, I mean, do you know profound in the most perverse but also in the most proper way sex motivate has motivated the civilization we're in you've removed completely one of the um and i'm not even saying it should be i'm just saying that it is one of the motivators you remove that and it's like oh what do i do now 
I look at stuff. I mean, I'm an artist. I love to look at stuff. But I'm always looking at stuff as a body. Like, like museum experience always comes with museum fatigue. Mm-hmm. I love that. I like when I have to go home and me and my wife sit on the floor or on the couch and go, my feet hurt. Yeah. I like that. But then you're also dealing with the only thing that you can look at is going to be things digitally constructed by human hands somewhere else. Yeah. Which is going to be a massive reduction mm-hmm. because I don't care how 8K, whatever high def version you have inside whatever those spaces people plan to occupy virtually, like the level of detail and presence and reality is never, ever, ever going to come close. And there's never going to be a possibility of a surprise because everything has to be artificially constructed yep. by humans. Yeah. So you are trapping, Which we're already building the, the preconditions for yeah, that world now. We're, we're just yeah. we're prepping ourselves for yes. right now. And things like social media um, and how the, the forms and the spaces yeah. are constructed. And Fake surprises. And Algorithms. Boxed in. But it's like, so you could you could be a real a, a person in a body and go walk in a field and smell the breeze and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Or you could say, you know what would be better? Let's get rid of this whole body thing. Let me just be a mind that has somehow a visual input. Um, and then I can walk through the best that a human can make of an approximation of that same field, mm-hmm. much less rich data. Yeah. And there's no going back. Yep. Never going back. Nope. So, hey, here's, this is here's, all, this just presumes that we don't plug needles into our brains and just kill ourselves immediately. Yeah, which exactly. I'm, which is very, very, I think it's highly, highly, highly pro- I think it's highly probable. All and, the monkeys that Elon Musk did Neuralink in are like dying. Yes, yes. So here's the thing. Why don't we do this? Can you come back on for one more episode uh, next week? Or sure. No? Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Okay. So what we'll do is we'll get practical again because we went insane today. Like we went full, full insanity today in a, in a way that I just can't hold back anymore. But, um, <laughs> And we'll go into sort of some of the practical diagnoses of like, okay, you're how do we how do we land the plane from this into some of the stuff you wrote about as far as like what happens when you're lazy or what happens yeah. when you're like, you know, when you're not operating in your calling. And maybe that will be the close to this series for a bit. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. maybe we just go into like so we laid this out. This is sort of the center, I guess like the meatiest of the meat kind of um the keystone. And uh in a way, I think it gives a great context to then talk about well, what do you do now? You know, like yeah. what, what would be, and so since we, I think we are going too long, I think we are going long enough that I think we should probably let people digest and break this one down a little bit. And so let's, let's make it, let's extend the meal. Sure. Land the plane. We'll have, um, Cody spice come back <laughs> and, uh, or spicy Cody. I don't know what Cody spice, spicy Cody. I like, I just, <laughs> It's not going to be your nickname, but it's probably never going to go away in my brain, and I don't know why. It's literal brain debris that doesn't make sense. Right? <laughs> and spicy flow. Yeah, spicy flow. <laughs> so yeah, so we'll, let's do that. You, you good with that? You, go, you yeah, good with that? Jeep? Go with that. Okay. Cool. And maybe we'll eat like Taco Bell or something on air. I don't know. Well, I'm good with that too. If you survive this episode and you come back to listen to us again, we are so thankful for you. Yeah. Like if this if if this doesn't freak you out, I don't. You're you're a lifer. You you can hang with us the rest of the way. I think. Yeah, um, and for those of you who left, like we love you too. We love you too. <laughs> we sure. thank you for listening up to this point. Yeah, up to wherever you dropped off. Thanks. <laughs> and yeah. speaking with passion is something that's missing sometimes. And uh, um, uh, nowhere in this are any of us so convinced that we're right that there isn't more to talk about. Mm-hmm. No, so that's always the more yeah. to talk about. Always more to talk about. And on that note.
Yeah. We love you guys. You're a fantastic audience, and we will catch you next time we have more to talk about. Thanks for coming, Cody. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottle.